Hi, this is Vic Nitti, Chair of the AUA Office Education, welcoming you to another one of the AUA Office of Education podcasts. This particular podcast is one in the series of Breaking Down the Barriers, Incorporating New Immuno-Oncologic Therapies. Today, we're going to specifically talk about managing side effects. In a moment, I'm going to introduce my co-host, Dr. Matthew Zibelman. But first, I'd like to cover a few housekeeping issues. First of all, today's, uh, today we're going to focus specifically on the um, immuno-oncologic agents and managing their side effects. Uh, this is obviously very important as we start to incorporate these therapies for our patients. And it brings uh, to light some unique management uh, issues that perhaps uh, we as urologists haven't dealt with in the past. Um, the learning objectives for this meeting are to identify current IO treatment barriers associated with managing patient side effects. Uh, and that will be the, uh, the primary uh, objective. We also want to understand the mechanisms underlying development of immune-related side effects in patients receiving uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors, be able to recognize potential immune-related side effects resulting from treatment, and appreciate the importance, and appreciate the importance of multidisciplinary care in the management of uh, patients with IO and uh, IO-related side effects, specifically related to checkpoint inhibitors. Um, I'd also like to recognize uh, that uh, and acknowledge uh, that this podcast uh, is supported by independent educational grants from Astra AstraZeneca, Bristol-Myers Squibb, and Merck and Company Incorporated. Now, I'd like to introduce uh, my co-host, uh, Dr. Matthew Zibelman. He is Assistant Professor of Medicine and Genitourinary Medical Oncology at the Fox Chase Cancer Center in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Matthew, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm really excited to talk about this important topic. So I guess we can start with uh, a review of the basic mechanism of action of checkpoint inhibitors, which are the uh, immunotherapeutic agents that uh, we are currently using for the treatment of uh, urologic cancers uh, in general, uh, and, and specifically now most commonly bladder cancers, but certainly other urologic cancers as well. Um, so tell, tell us a little bit about the, the mechanism of action and and how how this affects efficacy and side effects. Sure. And yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think understanding how these drugs work, I think, is really important to, to helping understand um, how they help patients, how the side effects come on, um, and, and then managing them. So basically, all of us have our immune systems that are designed to scan our body constantly to um, fight infection and to fight for cancers. And one of the reasons why we believe that cancers can sometimes grow and progress is that those that sort of delicate balance between the immune system and the cancer 
um, is lost and the cancer finds ways to grow despite the immune system trying to prevent it. Um, there are natural abilities in our own immune systems to sort of shut off an immune response once it's completed its job. And the cancers basically use that mechanism to give off signals to tell the immune system to, to stop or to ignore it, basically. And so the way these drugs work, these immune checkpoint inhibitors, is to block that signal. So the immune system cells are no longer um, are no longer hidden from the from the tumor and can go on and mount a tumor response. Um, and that's really where the efficacy comes in when these cells are appropriately uh, awoken or able to recognize the cancer again and attack it the way it's supposed to. So how efficacious are uh, IO therapies in, for example, urothelial cancer, uh, renal cell carcinoma, uh, in patients who have metastatic diseases? What kind of durable responses do we see? So there is a, a wide range of efficacy with these drugs across the many tumors that they are now approved for. Um, in the non-urologic space, tumors like melanoma, like microsatellite instable tumors, like Hodgkin's lymphoma, can have very high response rates. Um, uh, in some studies, and depending on you look, in the even 60, 70, 80% range. In urologic malignancies, specifically bladder cancer and kidney cancer, the response rates are more modest, more about somewhere from 15 to 25%. Um, but I think you hit on one of the big points, which is the durability of response. And when these patients do have responses, we can see deep and durable responses where patients with metastatic disease have significant reduction in the burden of tumor, um, as well as responses that can last months and even years. And it's really trying to you know, capture those patients um, and the benefits they get that I think has been a hallmark in the excitement about these drugs thus far. So now as we, uh, as we start to manipulate the immune system, what are some of the adverse effects we'll see as a result of this? And is there any specific site that these adverse events will affect? So yeah, this is a, a big topic that I spend a lot of time talking to my patients about. And um, when we try to wake up the immune system to recognize the cancer, the potential downside of that is that immune cells, that is not a specific response. And the immune cells can go on and recognize really any organ in the body at all. And what I often tell my patients is any itis you can think of, any inflammation, whether it's nephritis or hepatitis or pneumonitis, any of those can potentially happen with these drugs. And so as the immune system is um, dysregulated, um, sort of any sort of, uh, of organ system can potentially be affected. Some of the more common ones we see are the GI tract, so a form of colitis, um, which can present with diarrhea or similar symptoms. Um, skin toxicities are relatively common. Um, endocrinopathies, so things like thyroiditis um, and adrenal insufficiency. But just about any organ can and has been reported. And so having a sort of a lot of vigilance um, to look out for these and guiding patients to let us know about new side effects is really important. How, how often will we see a, uh, a, a side effect? What percent of patients uh, can one expect to be affected? And how common is it 
for more than one uh, organ system to be affected? So fortunately, the incidence of adverse events and particularly serious adverse events, at least with the program death one drugs that we primarily use in, in bladder and kidney cancer, um, only occur in about 15% of patients. Um, so the majority of patients um, often have few, um, if any, significant side effects or adverse events which is great. It allows us to, to treat a lot of patients even with, with other comorbidities um, uh, with these drugs. But patients at 15%, they can have um, significant and severe high-grade um, and even fatal adverse events. And they can sometimes have multiple organ systems affected at the same time. Um, it's not unheard of to have a patient come in with a, a serious skin rash that is affecting uh, the uh, majority of the skin. And at the same time, we see elevated liver function tests suggesting a, a hepatitis at the same time. Um, and so, so we can have patients come in in that kind of scenario. Now, I would imagine that obviously for the person uh, administering uh, IO therapies. It's, it's obviously important for them to understand, appreciate, and recognize side effects. But I would, I would guess it's also important for other clinicians involved in the patient's care, uh, if they're receiving these, to, to be at least somewhat familiar with what the side effects are. Obviously, a medical oncologist like yourself is going to be well versed in, in 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 these side effects, but for the the person who's less well versed in the side effects, what are some of the things that um, that you need to look out for in a patient who's receiving uh, immuno uh, oncologic therapy? So the, the the thing is, it can really um, be lots of different things, and, and patients can present in a variety of different ways that can be somewhat subtle or or are very obvious. Um, I do think all clinicians um, and really healthcare um, people who care for or interact with cancer patients in any way need to know at least something about these drugs um, and and how how they work and, and what they can what they can do, um, and then work with. Uh, oncologists to help manage any side effects that come on. Um, I, I tell my patients that, you know, if you go and have a new side effect and end up seeing your primary care doctor or an emergency room physician or an urgent care physician, um, to let them know what your side effects are, but also make sure that they're they're clear um, that, that this is not a typical chemotherapy drug. This is a different kind of drug. And to call me and make sure the other physician lets me know um, you know, what they're experiencing so um, I can be involved in the care. Um, but also having really good specialists that, that understand these drugs a little bit is incredibly important to help manage these patients when they present with, with different organ systems involved, such as the GI tract, having gastroenterologists who have an understanding of these diseases, or rheumatologists when patients come in with, with different arthritis. Um, and so um, I, I think it's, re it's really important that as these drugs are used more and more, that uh, more clinicians have some basic understanding of, of their potential and, and the side effects. Now, uh, what I've come to be educated on is that the side effects actually uh, can be uh, progressive and rapidly progressive. So um, would you say that early recognition and early treatment is as important uh, in this uh, in this area as it is in, in in just about 
anything that one does in uh, in treating side effects from uh, chemotherapeutic or other oncologic agents. Definitely, I, I think early recognition is is maybe the most important tool we have at this point, um, because once some of these um, side effects progress, it can be increasingly hard to treat. Um, as opposed to chemotherapy, where patients can certainly have acute toxicities, but usually the port of care and time for many of them is really the most, most important sort of way we manage them. Whereas with these immunotherapy, these immune-related adverse events, as we call them, um, recognizing them early and getting patients on the right treatment, which for many of them um, requires high doses of steroids, prednisone, or an equivalent, is really the key to trying to manage and ultimately and hopefully reverse the side effects that they might have. So I, I guess that because so many different organ systems can be affected and the symptoms that one can experience are so variable, you know, how do you, how do you know that, you know, let, let's say it's a relatively mild symptom of, uh, you know, whether it's related to you know, a visceral inflammation or an arthritis, you know, the patient starts to develop what seem to be modest symptoms. Um, how do, you know, how, how does the clinician in general, and then how do you know, you know, this needs to be treated, you know, immediately? What are some of the things you look for, or do you just have a very low threshold for treating with, with steroids? So I would definitely say I have a relatively low threshold to treat with steroids, um, but I, I think it's challenging. And I think you really hit on that, that, you know, there's a lot of gray area and it's not always clear when a patient has a new symptom, whether it's an immune adverse event or not. Um, I think the way I think about it is that these patients are, of course, still at risk for other things that you might see in advanced cancer patients, at risk for infection. There are risk for symptoms from progression of disease. There are risk for thrombosis. And so you think about sort of those things. And when a new symptom comes up, you certainly want to think about and rule out other um, non-immune adverse events that could be the cause. But when a patient is having a persistent symptom, even at a low or mild grade, that isn't getting better or isn't clearly explained by other etiologies, we do start to think about it being an immune adverse event and will consider um, treating patients with steroids depending on the scenario. And then I think for something serious, um, if a patient is obviously coming in unstable in any way, if they're having diarrhea that we would grade um, by sort of our standard um, CTCAE criteria as, as grade three or above, which is usually six bowel movements or more a day, um, Things along those lines uh, really prompt us to get patients in, put them in the hospital possibly, and start them on steroids. Now, are there times where when you're not sure you will do um, other types of testing to try and determine if it is, uh, um, if it is an immune-related inflammatory response? Definitely. I mean, I think like in many other scenarios, uh, you know, the more information you have, the better. And um, we certainly try to get tissue or get um, other markers and things that can help sort of confirm a diagnosis. Um, going back to some of the ones I've already touched on, such as skin toxicities and um, colitis or GI toxicities, we will refer patients for, for biopsies to confirm that what we're seeing is consistent with an immune adverse event. And in those cases, what we'll often see um, are 
in T cell inf infiltration, other signs of an inflammatory process um, that really help, help us know for sure that this is an immune adverse event. Um, and then depending on the side effect, different markers, different blood tests can sometimes also help us confirm the diagnosis and, and you know, help strengthen the idea that we need to treat these patients aggressively with steroids and other supportive therapies. Now, uh, I know uh, uh, just a, a couple of minutes ago, you mentioned uh, uh, a, a grade, grade three toxicity or adverse event. Uh, I guess that must also mean that there's a grade one and two. So maybe you could take us through the sort of the grading of uh, um, adverse events, and then we can talk a little bit about what the management might be according to that grading. Yeah, absolutely. So this really stems in many ways um, more from the clinical trial world, um, where we have to have a standardized grading for various common toxicities in order to help sort of speak the same language and be able to compare side effects um, across trials and across patients. And so the um, common terminology for criteria of adverse events is basically um, a collection of, of common adverse events um, and different criteria to grade them from a grading of one, which is mild, up to five, which is basically a, 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 a side effect that leads to, to death. Um, and so these grades have been used in trials and we now will often apply them to patients in the real world setting to really help guide us um, on treatment and make treatment decisions. Um, grade one and two tend to be considered more mild type side effects or adverse events, whereas grade three and four are, are the more serious ones with grade four generally considered something that is life threatening. Um, and the, each individual drug and the company that sponsors it uh, provides information based on some of this grading material to give recommendations on management when patients present with new adverse events. And now several of the organizations such as ASCO, NCCN, SITSI, or the Society for Immunotherapy of Cancer have provided guidelines that help in trying to use grading of these adverse events to guide physicians about how to best manage and treat side effects. So can you, can you give us an example of something that might be a, uh, a grade one or two side effect that you could manage sort of with supportive care? Sure, absolutely. So again, skin toxicity being a relatively common one, patients may come in with a, a small area or a focal um, pruritic um, itchy red rash um, that is not impairing their, their daily life, um, but is something they notice and will often treat something like that in a small area with a topical steroid or, or a topical cream and, and manage it that way. Um, similarly, uh, grade one diarrhea patients have um, less than four um, loose bowel movements a day. We'll sometimes manage initially with Imodium, with supportive therapies. Um, but as something uh, gets more severe uh, and impairs their quality of life or their um, daily living more, um, that in increases the, the severity of it and prompts us to try other therapies. So now as, as you progress up the line and you get somebody with a little bit more severe reaction that you're going to treat, uh, let's say with a steroid, is that necessarily uh, an intravenous steroid and a hospitalization, or is that something that might be able to be treated as an outpatient? 
Yeah, I think um, I think there's no clear guidelines about this, and it does come to I think the clinicians um, feeling about the the severity of the patient. Um, but this is something that we can sometimes treat patients with outpatient oral steroids um, with close follow-up and manage manage it that way. Um, for example, a patient who comes in um, with a, a mild to moderate form of hepatitis where transaminases like AST and ALT may be 10 to 15 times the upper limit of normal, but patients are otherwise asymptomatic, bilirubin isn't elevated, um, that might be something where you could try a patient on oral steroids. You're convinced that this is an immune adverse event, not some other toxicity. Um, and maybe follow up with outpatient labs in two or three days to make sure it's improving and manage it that way. Of course, if the patient isn't getting better, you put them in the hospital for, for further evaluation and possibly intravenous steroids. But, but outpatient may be effective in a setting like that. So, I mean, it, it seems to me that patient education seems to be paramount here. If somebody has a new symptom, it's really important that they tell somebody about it, probably, preferably, uh, the person who, who's treating them with IO. But it seems that patient education um, is critical here. How often do, you know, let, let, how often do you do routine lab work to see if there's any you know, maybe the patient's not quite symptomatic yet. So how, how often is, is blood work or anything else monitored in patients who are on uh, IL? So these drugs are all intravenous. They're given, um, depending on the drug, every two to four weeks. And so we will do relatively routine blood work with every infusion, so about every two to four weeks, and that's a CBC and a complete metabolic panel. We'll also check thyroid function on a semi-regular basis every or every other uh, treatment. Um, and then occasionally or symptom-induced may check other things such as cortisol for adrenal function. Um, and then we do, I agree with you though that patient education is the absolute most important part here. And really emphasizing to patients that that a new symptom, a new side effect is something that, that we want to know about. And I'd rather hear about it and decide it's not something I'm concerned about than not have the patient tell me for a few days and then come in in extremis and, and we're trying to play catch up. And so um, if there is any thought that the patient has a new symptom or side effect, we'll, we will certainly err on the side of bringing them in, check lab tests, and, and sort of do the necessary workup to make sure they're not having an immune event. So you, you mentioned um, thyroid function and adrenal function, and I guess pancreas is another uh, another organ in in the uh, in the endocrine system. If somebody does have uh, a problem there, some sort of an endocrinopathy, um, is the treatment the is are we using steroids for that, or is the treatment different? And how aggressive does one have to be if there is a deficiency in thyroid hormone or some of the adrenal hormones or, or pancreatic uh, um, uh, enzymes, et cetera? Yeah, I think that's a great question. The endocrinopathies are, uh, I think, a very interesting um, side effect that we see not uncommonly with these drugs. And I think many of us oncologists are starting to feel more and more like endocrinologists these days. Um, but the patients can have um, basically total uh, let, let down or ablation of, of their endocrine organs. To take thyroid as an example, um, if you follow 
thyroid function and TSH is regularly in these patients, you'll sometimes see a sort of thyroiditis picture where the TSH goes down very, very low, maybe even undetectable, and the free T3 and free T4 are very high as basically the thyroid organs being attacked and it's releasing all of its thyroid hormone into the body all at once. And then the gland stops working. And so the TSH starts to go up and up as it's trying to tell the thyroid gland to work, but it can't anymore. And so patients will eventually start to develop hypothyroid symptoms, um, things that you would expect, um, feeling cold, uh, feeling tired, uh, hair changes. And you basically just put them on replacement therapy. But in that instance, you don't need to use steroids. You really just need to replace the, the hormone that they're no longer making. And the same goes for adrenal insufficiency. Patients may come in feeling fatigued or have blood pressure or electrolyte issues, and you check their cortisol level, find that they're no longer making it, and you basically replace that. Um, and with the pancreas, um, what we uh, see sometimes is patients can actually develop a type of type 1 diabetes where they're no longer producing insulin, and they can sometimes present even in DKA, even without a prior history of diabetes. And of course, you don't want to give steroids in those patients, which is certainly just going to worsen their hyperglycemia. And so you'll replace those patients with insulin and, and stabilize them that way. Um, the one endocrinopathy that's, that's different is hypothesitis, when patients actually present with headaches or vision changes due to changes around the pituitary gland. In those patients, we do treat with steroids um, in order to, to uh, in, improve the inflammation in that area. So it's clear that you as a medical oncologist and somebody who, who is administering this therapy on a regular basis has pretty set protocols on, uh, on, on how to deal with these adverse events, particularly as these therapies have become more and more popular, again, in urologic cancers and in non-urologic cancers. But as we finish up, I just thought maybe, and we touched upon it before, but I just think it's important to just discuss the role of the, the non-medical oncologist and the urologist who's not necessarily administering um, uh, 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 immuno therapies. What is their role, you know, from the, the PCP on down, the, P, the people that may interact with, uh, with these types of patients? Because I mean, obviously, uh, uh, you know, one doesn't have to uh, do much more than turn on the TV to see that these agents are now being widely used in, in many types of, uh, of different cancers. Uh, so it seems that the medical community in general really needs to have some basic understanding of this. And, and, and specifically for our urologists, there are urologists who are not urologic oncologists or who may not be administering uh, these therapies. What do they need to know if a patient, you know, shows up in their office, their partner's patient, or or uh, or, or 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 the patient's traveling or something? Just just tell us some of the things that the, the basic things that quote unquote every doctor should know about patients on uh, immunotherapy. Yeah, I think you're exactly right, and this is this is a topic that um, I've really um, thought a lot and talked a lot about recently. I, I think that primary care doctors and emergency room doctors, and in the GU oncology world, urologists are really on the front lines here, and they're going to see these patients, and um, there are important things to know. 
first off, I think just knowing what these drugs are and, you know, the ones that we're going to most commonly use at this point in, in the urologic space, um, pembrolizumab or Keytruda and nivolumab um, or Optivo, um, and knowing that these drugs um, are not like chemotherapy. Patients can have side effects that can happen at any time. So even if they've been on them for a year or more and seemingly doing well, that doesn't mean that they couldn't all of a sudden develop a new side effect. I think that's one important point. I think that if a patient is coming in with sort of any new or unusual symptom or side effect um, that, that is different from what they, they've um, had before, um, whether it's diarrhea, whether it's um, vision changes, um, e even things that are just that are just subtle, like their fatigue all of a sudden has gotten worse. Um, I think that that probably prompts um, basic blood tests and a discussion with the patient's oncologist to make sure that they're aware of it um, and, and that any further workup that, that might be needed um, is necessary. And I think um, even um, urologists who, who aren't that familiar with them, if a patient is is if they're called about a patient of theirs who's in the hospital who's sick or comes to see them who's having um, what seems like a, a serious side effect, um, I, I think getting the right people involved, but considering starting a patient on steroids if, if they're sort of the first encounter um, uh, is okay. And um, I'd rather start for steroids first and ask questions later in some cases to make sure I get them on therapy quickly um, if you're worried about someone having a, a really serious um, side effect. Um, but I think communication with the oncologists and the other specialists um, is, is really essential here. Uh, Dr. Matthew Zibelman from Fox Chase Cancer Center in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, that truly was an excellent uh, review, comprehensive and clear on what side effects we can expect from immunotherapeutic agents and um, how we can manage them and how we can uh, be involved even if we are not the people that are primarily delivering those agents. Um, Matthew, uh, thank you so much. I, uh, I really appreciate uh, uh, your time and commitment to this topic. Thank you, it was really uh, great to have this opportunity. Thanks for having me. And as always, I'd like to thank our audience for listening. And if you would like more information, please visit us on the web uh, at auau.auanet.org. Thank you.